Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Dustin Jenkins. He's a Neubauer family professor of history at the University of Chicago. He's formerly was a PhD student at Stanford, and prior to that went to Columbia University. He's told me he comes from the New York area, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with when the next time the Chicago Bears play the New York Giants or anything for your mind. But uh, but thank you for joining me today. We're here to talk about this wonderful new book powerful new book that he's written called The Bonds of Inequality. He also has been very productive within the last year, and he has co-edited a book called The Histories of Racial Capitalism. Destin, thanks for joining me. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me, Robert. So you're digging down deep, probably started a lot of this work before the pandemic, but uh, tell me a little bit about what got in your craw? What inspired you to paint the picture that the bonds of inequality presents to the world and challenge us to see things from a new light? Yeah, well, uh, thank you for the question. I, I think the first word I'll highlight in the title and subtitle is inequality. Uh, and so I kind of want to begin with my longstanding any interest in inequality. And so in many ways, it was as a child growing up in Jamaica, Queens, I became intimately aware of the difference between income and wealth. What I mean by that is where I lived in my neighborhood, I was pretty much the richest kid on the block. I had the new Jordan sports equipment, but I went to a private school in Manhattan, Trevor Day School, where I learned about the difference between income and wealth with colleagues and, and friends who had country homes in different parts of the country, uh, some folks who had parents who had retired in uh, what you might call rentiers. Uh, so the real difference between quantitative and qualitative between income and wealth growing uh, growing up as a child. And the 2008 financial crisis, like for many of us, uh, really sharpened my interest in inequality. And, and the key questions, uh, really the ma main observation I walked away was, was, was that the individuals you've never heard of and the institutions about which you know little can dramatically shape your future can dramatically alter where you live, the terms of your employment and so forth. And so that was my interest in inequality that was uh, beefed up, I suppose you could say, uh, after the financial crisis. But the real focus in on the bonds part of that, that title, the bonds of inequality, came around the time, time of the Detroit bankruptcy. And I know you're from the Detroit area, so we can talk a little bit about the Motor City. Uh, but if, what I remember about that, those announcements was there was the discussion of the emergency manager, Kevin Orr. And that immediately, as a historian with a kind of more holistic sense, I didn't really, didn't really understand the bond finance part yet, but I understood that there were questions of democracy when you talk about an emergency manager. When I heard the language around who would be forced to take a haircut, I thought of and heard matters of redistribution. 
uh, I began to think about uh, the future prospects for funding the public in the context of a 30-year project of privatization and austerity, which made me think about the quality of life. And all of this in a predominantly African-American city brought me to the point that there was something that had something, race had something to do with the politics of municipal debt. And so um, really that was the, the early childhood journey, the scholarly interest that, that piqued my, 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 my curiosity around municipal bond finance. Um, and then ultimately what I, what I embarked on was a project not about Detroit, uh, great works about Detroit, but thinking about chapter nine bankruptcy is actually a fairly rare incident given the amount of debt that gets issued on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so the question for me was in the absence of such a dramatic event, how did the municipal bond market shape the distribution of resources and condition black futures? And being a PhD student at Stanford, San Francisco was just up the way, I decided to focus my case study there. I remembered reading about you uh, when I was watching the uh, recent Princeton presentation that you made that suggested your initial interest was to look as a student at the relationship between China and African-American people. And that shifted to municipal finance. Uh, how did I say you found a different Darth Vader? Hey. And, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's it. Yeah, I, I think um, just that, that that's the, the kind of tale is that um, my, my plan going into graduate school, I, I, I had a, something of a plan, but you go where the sources take you. Um, and you, you th thankfully, I had some great advising that encouraged me to just shift my interest. They didn't pigeonhole me into the study of black internationalism. But the enduring feature uh, that, that stretches from my time as an undergraduate writing my senior thesis to my early interest as a first year graduate student um, up until now was the kind of politics of the boycott as a strategy in tackling various political economic realities. So in my senior thesis, I found during the 1930s, as part of the kind of don't buy where you can't work campaign, an argument that we should learn from our friends in East Asia as they were boycotting imperial powers. And so thinking about different strategies to escape the, the kind of bonds and boundaries of, of political economic oppression was something that kind of endured even as I left the, the Afro-Asia connection uh, uh, to my older days, my, my younger self. I'm laughing, total coincidence, but today I listened to a record while driving by Randy Weston called The Nubian Suites, which is a famous, he's a famous jazz artist uh, who's originally, I believe, from Brooklyn and then lived up in Western Massachusetts. But his whole thing was, there was a narrator and then he did this jazz talking about the relation between African people and the growth of Asia. And uh, it was fascinating through kind of running through Egypt, but it was it was a beautiful, beautiful record. I'll get you a copy of it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So um, here we zoom in bonds of inequality. I'll drop in on top of great financial crisis. I used to work with the Senate Banking Committee be in the hedge fund world. I could see the balanced budgets at the state and local level and a downturn caused by these big derivative systems that were unmasked was going to create havoc at the state and local level. Now you have, I want you to describe the texture of municipal bonds, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about the dilemma 
from my hometown. When I went back in there, I got my shirt on for you. Marvin Gaye, what's I going see, on? I see. And, I, like uh, I like that. And so Marvin Gaye was a patient of my father's medical practice, by the way. But, uh, but at any rate, uh, I go back. What's going on? I see people who didn't cause the problem. I see women like my then deceased mother who'd worked 40 years, 45 years, and then they use this word called bankruptcy. Now, if a company doesn't have revenue, they can't pay. But this kind of bankruptcy was something caused from outside, not being repaired by outside. And then the question was, who bears the burden? And who bears the burden of these women that work 45 years getting their pensions cut from 19000 to 12000 or getting their medical care cut off, having done nothing wrong, and the notion of bankruptcy in a municipality means we refuse to tax the population. It's not a, it's not a mathematical necessity. It's a choice to who to hammer. And I think that the, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a cauldron, as you probably recall. There were all these derivative instruments involved and uh, triggers on derivatives when there were downgrades that Kwame Kilpatrick's staff had arranged, sent things into a downward spiral. There's all kinds of details. So, you know, maybe we'll do another session sometime just on Detroit, but I could smell a rat. And then I see your book and you're going through all these different things. And, and what I love, I just want to frame it for our audience. What I see is a man who's not saying markets are neutral and benevolent. You're saying they're social institutions and they got patterns, they got mental illnesses, they got some virtues, but this thing sculpts the outcomes we're going to see. And racism, which is a, what you might call part of the original sin relative to our founding principles, is embodied in those processes, in those design of institutions, in the implementation and enforcement. And you, and you painted that picture for it was very satisfying for me to read. Well, thank you, thank you, Rob. That's that's high praise because, you know, I know you know you know this world very well. Um, so I, I mean, that's that's kind of what the book um, really begins with is the position that uh, markets are political economic constructions. And I, I actually found that the municipal bond market was was the was the easiest way to sort of underscore that basic point. Here you have a municipality that borrows, that issues different financial instruments, whether it be a general obligation bond or a revenue bond. They turn to markets uh, to borrow from investors and you have bankers who mediate that relationship. Um, but ultimately, you, you see the powerful role of the state at every step of the way, whether it be federal marginal tax rates at mid-century, which effectively uh, is part of the kind of compact between borrowers and lenders, because that becomes basically the mid-20th century version of offshore tax havens in the sense that municipal bond investors are able to secure tax-exempt interest income. But that's a response to federal marginal tax policy. You could think about the Banking Act of 1933, the Glass-Steagall Act, which is going to allow commercial banks to continue to underwrite the infrastructural needs of the American state. There you have the federal government through legislation uh, affecting and shaping the municipal bond market and who can participate and who cannot. And so that was really my starting point when I began the project, the political economic constructions of, of markets. But really the, the challenge was to think really 
com- uh, uh, complexly uh, or in, 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 in multiple ways about the ways in which the business of debt proved to be a powerful generator of different and overlapping inequities. And so what I mean by that is uh, spatial inequities in terms of debt finance projects in specific neighborhoods, while other neighborhoods were effectively rendered unworthy of debt, unworthy of investment. Wealth inequality in the ways I describe, whether it be the upward redistribution of wealth to uh, wealthy individuals uh, who could afford, in other words, to lend a municipality, uh, say a million dollars or $500,000 and not see their principal return for another 30 years. That the kind of thinking about debt and wealth inequality. But the real question was racial inequality. What are the ways in which uh, municipal debt has proved to be a powerful generator of racial inequality? And it kind of for the book, what I do is... Uh, what I focus on is, um, I, I remember you did a, in an interview with it was um, with Professor Atif Mian at, over at Princeton. Oh yeah. And you had this great he had this great point where he talked about one narrative of finance that essentially says that financiers seek to channel investments to facilitate and lead to economic growth. Right. That's one narrative that doesn't make sense to make sense of finance capitalism post 1975 or so, where the emphasis is on asset appreciation. But that mid 20th century moment, right, the idea. Of, of investing in certain activities that lead to economic growth, one of the things I do in the book is to say that growth is not a neutral concept. Growth is a racialized concept. And to highlight the ways in which for mid-20th century American cities, the way to achieve economic growth was through what I call in the book, the infrastructural investment in whiteness. Targeting specific Keynesian artifacts of consumption, you might say, to allow for middle class white folks to come in and consume downtown. Uh, that's one way you can generate economic growth through consumption. Uh, the ways in which it, that, though, was predicated on hiring white workers to build the physical infrastructure, uh, and that occurred through segregated building trades, all while again in, in, in offering uh, basically segregated wages, also while redistributing wealth upwards in the ways I described earlier to largely white wealthy bondholders. So that's the, the in, in San Francisco, that's the, the kind of racial story that I play out, that I discuss at one level. Of course, the allocation and distribution of funds and the ways in which that reinscribes racial inequality is another uh, angle. Detroit is a different kind of city because it's, you know, unlike San Francisco, which remains a predominantly white city, Detroit as a predominantly African-American city falls more in the category of a Washington, D.C. Other places that experience the transition from black power to black politics, the different kinds of chocolate cities that emerged in Atlanta, D.C., Philadelphia. And so the racial politics of municipal debt there is quite different than in San Francisco because you have the deployment of the kind of criminalization of blackness. Can black people actually govern and manage the purse, um, which um, you know also factors into the, the Detroit bankruptcy story, though in some surprising, surprising ways as well, because you have people like Kevin Orr, who himself is an African-American, who's going to preside over austerity. Uh, as you also see with people like Andrew Bremer in Washington, D.C., when he's appointed to the Financial Control Board there. So um, the racial politics change over time, um, but and it took great work to figure out how to kind of pierce that. Um, San Francisco demanded a particular story that might be different from Detroit, but it ultimately proves the rule that this, the race has something to do with municipal debt. The question is empirically, and, and how, do you, how do you get out that relationship? Let me, let me ask a question kind of in a being simplistic in the spirit of trying to illuminate. You've written about race and capitalism as distinct from racial capitalism. 
Is racial capitalism where essentially certain people's uh, well-being doesn't count? It's not on the scorecard. It's not in the design. Uh, how do you how do you s explain what is racial capitalism? Sure. So so the the difference between racial capitalism and racing capitalism is is really among those of us who agree that there is a fundamental relationship that race is not an externality it's not a cultural overflow it's not some relic from some more objective economic system but it's fundamental but we differ around for instance the origin story i mean there's one account that says from the very beginning uh, race and capitalism uh, joined uh, from the earliest moments. There were some people who would say that actually that relationship develops in the context of the slave, tra slave trade and indigenous colonization. Um, and the folks who, uh, who would emphasize race and capitalism as a framework want to hold space for other axes of difference that are crucial to the reproduction of capitalism. That is to say, not just race, but patriarchy, other modes of difference uh, that capitalism relies on to uh, allocate resources, distribute life chances, and reproduce itself. So there's a difference between the framework, but ultimately among those of us who agree that, again, race is not an externality and afterthoughts of subsidiary of some more fundamental story about class. Um, but racial capitalism is also a methodology, I would say, a way of seeing uh, and what I mean by that is if you take the genre of finance, you've uh, talked about this and written about it and, and you're, you're intimately aware, there's something about the language of finance, the genre of finance, that gets sort of laundered of the materiality, that gets laundered of and decoupled from the racialized bodies that are visited upon by financial transactions. Racial capitalism as a methodology allows us to see that from the 20th century onwards, which is my, my kind of area of expertise, lending, buying, selling uh, was always linked to race in some kind of way. Whether it be in the Jim Crow South, you have racialized violence, which becomes the basis of security, of a secure investment in the South. Uh, or in the ways I described for, for race as having something to do in the ways of being linked to economic growth and the centering of whiteness. So racial capitalism as a methodology allows us to challenge the, the technocratic discourse of financiers that would speak in terms of various ratios. It would assume that uh, the actual buying, selling, underwriting, and investing has nothing to do with racial inequality. But of course, to your, your original point um, about what what the, the main sort of the upshot of racial capitalism arguments actually are. Part of it is that um, it helps to make sense of processes of exclusion. Uh, it helps us make sense of processes of containment, whether it be in the form of the plantation, the ghetto, or the prison. Um, and also the select allocation of various rights uh, to a handful of racialized minorities who then preside over in the ways we see in Detroit and elsewhere regimes of austerity that then allow folks to argue and insist that see it has nothing to do with race right so that's the kind of the, the magic of race the racial in capitalism in those in those yeah I, uh, I remember just in my own life being curious there was a gentleman who I think wrote more about race and capitalism named Meyer Weinberg the short history. He was at University of Massachusetts. Uh, but I, I remember probably the person that influenced most my way of seeing, because I, I grew up in that cauldron called Detroit, 67 riots, 
There were tanks and sandbags on the street, and I was hearing gunshots. I was a Detroit Free Press deputy delivery boy, and they said, you're not going outside in the morning. Too many people sitting in windows with guns. Dr. King, three weeks to the day before he died in 1968, spoke at the place. He gave a speech called The Other America uh, at the high place I would go to high school five years later. That was tumultuous, and uh, I, I felt like, and I've written about this, I grew up in a haunted house. And what I mean by that is the haunted house is as a kid, I'm a human. I'm playing football, basketball, and stuff, and going to art museums or watching the Nutcracker because my mom worked for the Detroit Symphony, and there are people of color all over. Now, I, I did grow up understanding that I was in the population minority, but the power majority. There were, I, could, I could smell that. But the point was all of this turmoil fostered a huge curiosity in me. I studied as a minor in college the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King, partly because I was so taken aback by the fact that he died three weeks after he spoke at that school. And, uh, but, I, but I look at these, and I, try, I still try to understand how we do and don't see these things. And the person who's probably been my, my greatest, I don't mean I ever met them, but James Baldwin, his, his weaving between understanding psychology, emotions of fear, curiosity, and all these things. And I was gonna ask you, did you ever see Take This Hammer? The PBS documentary you did I on did. San Francisco. Yeah. Rob, this was a huge, this was a huge... Uh, Wake-up call, man. Huge wake-up, a huge touchstone in the project as well, because James Baldwin, who, for the folks who haven't seen the documentary, in spring 1963, he's in San Francisco, um, and one of the things he, the, I mean, he, Baldwin is, of course, brilliant. There are many quotables, but one of the things he's noticing about the Western edition Fillmore era, which had become kind of like, I suppose you could say the black Mecca, the, the point of settlement for African-Americans following, during and following World War II, uh, is he's looking at the landscape, a bulldozed landscape of properties that had been subdivided, vacant, uh, as part of the city's urban renewal campaign, which he describes, as have others, as Negro removal. But what he says is, he says, all of this has something to do with money. And it was such a profound remark because the question becomes much like, you know, what does some, what does municipal debt have to do with race? Well, that something is is actually a mystery, right? When you peel back the layers and you're not sort of one dimensional, you can actually see the complexity of that relationship. Likewise, Baldwin's point that all of this has something to do with money. Well, okay, what is that something? It could be real estate speculations, speculating in blighted properties and allowing and hoping for the local state to pay you above market rate in properties you speculated in. That's the money piece. But one of the things I found is in addition to that was the ways in which, for instance, the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency is going to effectively borrow from Bank of America to secure a line of credit to carry out many of the urban renewal functions. And so here you have Bank of America, who by the early 1960s, if not the late 1950s, becomes the major power player in the municipal bond market. They have their cake and they eat it too. They underwrite the infrastructural needs of suburbs, but also the infrastructural needs and dilemmas of cities 
who are trying to figure out how to remove black people from the city in the context of a wider society in which blackness is seen as depreciating property values. So there's that something that has to do with money. Uh, he didn't talk about it, but that remark, that, as you said, just the profoundness of Baldwin, the, the delivery, the pacing, made me say, well, what is that something? And I was able to, to kind of think about the relationship between local urban renewal projects, Negro removal, and the wider municipal bond market, um, which, I, which I deal with in chapter four of the book. Mm -hmm. I, uh, coming just with a little more Baldwin, uh, my, my dear friend, and he's been a guest on this podcast, Ed Pavlik, who's had access deep into the archives. Uh, he wrote a book called Who Can Afford to Improvise about the inspiration of music in the uh, mind of Baldwin, because Baldwin used to be a scholar. He used to win at debates, and it made people angry. And he said, I'm winning with my skill, but I'm polarizing. It's almost like brain science. I, I'm shaming them and they're getting more hardened. And so he had this epiphany while listening to a song of Aretha Franklin uh, called I Wonder. And he said, she speaks to the heart and, the, and to all of the people at the same time. And he talked with Ray Charles. They did some experiments. He knew Harry Belafani, but he essentially developed a, a poetic emotional awareness of how to engage in politics. By the way, he had to jump out of the country. And some people claim that that uh, documentary in San Francisco, Take This Hammer, was what inspired Robert Kennedy and others to start tracking him to the point where some of his inner circle warned him that, that he was on watch lists. Yeah, Ed, Ed illuminates this. But Ed's got a paper he's working on has not yet been published. And I want to introduce you to him. Uh, but in that paper, what he says is, when Dr. King dies, I was reading earlier this year just about tumultuous windows in politics because the pandemic and George Floyd's murder and all. So I, I start reading this paper that Ed shares with me, that's, and it says Baldwin was working on a screenplay about the life of Malcolm X. Dr. King and he were friends. They, I think, met five days or something before, and then Dr. King is killed. And then Stokely Carmichael, who's also his friend, was much more militant, not committed to nonviolence. And Baldwin is writing letters to his brother saying, what's really going on here is that these people have not made progress in healing racial inequality and injustice starting from the mid-50s. And they pushed and pushed and pushed and they can't make a difference. And they're frustrated and I understand the frustration. But if they engage in a militancy now, even though many, many white people who are sympathetic to the mission will get afraid, not consciously, but because they're afraid with all the Vietnam turmoil and the hippies and everything, they're gonna be in a place where they are gonna say, What's happening that's shaking my foundation stones? And the more militant the protests, the more they're going to join the counter reaction. And, and so what I see is this, um, how would I say, process that has to go beyond logical recognition for the healing. And, and at some level, guilt of the oppressor 
might fortify their resistance and their reaction rather than their, what I'll call accommodation and redesign. That brings me to you. You've got a very vibrant and scholarly tone and style that is, is constructive. It's not just what you might call pages on fire with bitterness. And I think that I really think you can be a healer. I think that 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 musical analog or the poetic analog seems to be part of how you you express things scientifically, but you express them in a uh, I don't know what I would call it, with a wisp of compassion is in the mix, and I find that I find that really fascinating. Uh, uh, and, and, it, and in these times, I guess what I'm trying to tell my audience, in these times, when things are so hardened and have been going backwards, you know, Peter Temin, the economic historian from MIT, he's writing a book right now. He's published one of the chapters on our website called Never Together, about the history from reconstruction to the present of the counter reaction to efforts to evolve and what you might call uh, diminish racial polarity, racial animosity, and racial injustice. And uh, his book is very, very moving. Yeah, yeah. Well, in I, I, illuminating I, that frustration. Let me let me just kind of. There was so much there that was just rich and from the heart. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think well, you the, inspire. The, That's what I'm saying. You inspire me. Thank you. The the the, the thing I'll say is um, about art and science right And this this since i love that you have the uh marvin gay shirt on and when i was thinking about the book actually especially as i was turning the dissertation into a book was i tried to and this may sound silly but i tried to not only just think about historiographical stakes and the intervention and the theoretical implications and the kinds of sources on which i rely but also to try to think about this as perhaps a piece of art, right? In the sense of an artistic contribution that through various stylistic choices may make people more amenable to the argument, may make the argument, in fact, a bit more digestible. So and one, one of the things I tried to do was thinking about chapter titles, right? So instead of long drawn out chapter titles, one word chapter titles that convey the argument of the chapter. And ultimately thinking about an onward march, so we think about the arc in terms of three parts. So thinking about drama, right? Thinking about the staging of a play, thinking about yeah. modes of implotment. Because uh, you're right, I mean, there's there was one difficulty uh, of trying to figure out, well, what is the sort of racial dynamic of the story? That was one, one difficulty. The second uh, issue that I had to work through was to kind of teach myself finance, right? I don't come from a finance background. I was a history major in college and also as a graduate student, but I had to kind of figure out what is this bond finance stuff all about? How does it work? I was thankfully able to kind of teach myself because the, the archives on which I rely the key actors are teaching their fellow employees how it works, right? There's nothing intuitive about this. And so I noticed what was at, what I kind of see as a kind of pedagogy of bond finance among my historical actors that then taught me how this, how this business worked. But in addition to that challenge, there was the challenge which is um, not unique to this project. I think it is the challenge of writing history more generally uh, perhaps in other disciplines as well, but how do you narrate simultaneity? 
How do you think about change over time? How do you think about foreshadowing? In other words, what are the genres in which you write? And the point is not in the sense of kind of a Hayden Whiteian theoretical exposition, but to think about how do you convey the terms of a story in ways that are digestible, in ways that people have are able to grapple with and grasp. And um, I, I appreciate you kind of making the analogy to kind of uh, James Baldwin and science and art, because I really did try to see it in that way. Because uh, what what is the point of writing, spending 10 years writing a book that folks don't read? I mean, you have to think about the ways in which you can communicate a set of ideas. And um, of course, you know, whether it be, um, and this is, this is another, it's, it's very interesting you bring this up, uh, James Baldwin. Last night I watched a, a documentary with my father um, called Soul. And it's part of what they were, what, what they were showing was huh, the, the, the courage of broadcasting um, the, the, the content uh, in the context of the Black Power Movement, of the fiery uprisings uh, of Amiri Baraka, of, of you know, Sonia Sanchez. But here was, how do we take the complex ideas of systems of domination but also convey it in a way that makes people feel the vibrations that, and so it's that always that dance, that dialectic between the articulation of ideas that have meat and weight behind it, where the analysis is sharp, but also distributing and disseminating and articulating in a way, whether it be through music or shorts or other formats, uh, podcasts, uh, which is why I'm so grateful for this opportunity to convey the ideas at stake um, and so, um, yes, art, culture, uh, but also, uh, of course, the scholarly craft of, of argumentation and so on. Now, that, that uh, documentary was about Hazlips. That's right. The, That's right. Yeah, That's yeah, right. I, I, I've talked to some of their family and one of my former partners in the music business said Gerard is the music supervisor for that documentary. Oh, wow, and, wow, uh, wow. I, That's all. I, I saw it early on in the making and uh, that was brilliant. And he was trying to create what his daughter called the Black Johnny Carson Show, which was not blinking, not kowtowing to white culture, but creating a vitality and a magnet, but put the integrity of what black people had to say because this is what they experienced and felt right on the stage. And it's a brilliant, brilliant program. And uh, I enjoyed that, that film. I was very inspired by it as well. Uh, well, you know, the, you... Uh, it's funny, I, I wanted to tell you how I came to put this t-shirt on at the last uh, half hour before. I was thinking about you, and there are three different verses in the song, What's Going On. And in the first and second one, it says, we got to find a way to bring some loving here today. But in the third one, it said, we got to find a way to bring some understanding here today and I just remember that contrast between the verses and I thought you bridge those two things I'll tell you another another analogy for me that's in the arts and music realm the person in my life on this planet who I think melded politics with love more than any other was Bob Marley Bob Marley was fiercely political but he did it with his heart, as well as his mind, as well as with his biblical scholarship. And uh, he, there are 
very good scholarly books about, I, I've taught some at the Union Theological Seminary and Cornell West and others turned me on to these uh, works about Marley and his inspiration. And this was not happenstance. He was a very, very fiercely purposeful man. And uh, so those were the kind of, uh, we might call images that came into my dream world as I read through your book and, and watched you in, in other contexts. And I think, I guess, let's talk about young people. You're still, but compared to me, quite young, <laughs> but you're, you're, down, you're going down the path now. As you look behind you to the people you'd mentor, to my daughters, nine and 12, who are mixed race, to Young Scholars Initiative at INET. What, what's the, how do I say, uh, you know how uh, James, uh, excuse me, Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey, the call to action, the hero with a thousand faces. These are parables and mythologies. But what do you see as the way to become not only impactful, but a satisfied scholar. You know, you t I, and I'm, I'm taking you right to a, a fork in the road, which is a lot of people can get tenure and play games and stuff by being conformists. But do they look into the mirror late at night and feel a sense of satisfaction? And I think one of the reasons I emphasize this arts and heart along with the intellect is that I think it allows you to be more truthful and more courageous. But you tell me, what, what are you going to tell the young people about the journey you're on and the experience you've had? Wow, that is um, it's an awesome question. Awesome in the sense of, you know, it's just the, the articulation and, you know, how you shared your own journey, but also the, the weight, right? Awesome in the sense that's a heavy kind of uh, question and also responsibility. Um, I think the the first thing is um, kind of recognizing positionality, but also not assuming that I am all-knowing. And, and mo to, let me clarify, as they say, the young kids are all right. I mean, in the sense that um, the, the, in, the incredible protest energy in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, I mean, the young people who have articulated the importance of ending gun violence, linking gun violence uh, from the police in black communities to mass shootings. I mean, the analysis, in other words, that moves beyond just provincial domains and provincial uh, issues or issues that may seem only particular to certain communities is astounding in the sense of just the, synth the synth synthesis at work. Uh, so part of then to the question is to learn and recognize that I'm, I have a great deal to learn from them, whether it be their courage, their ability to make connections. Um, and so that's, that's just very important. I mean, the other thing is just as an instructor, um, I kind of came of, uh, moved through graduate school at a time when the dominant paradigm was questions of resistance. How do we, how did people resist the terms of their oppression? And I, that obviously is a very, very important question. And, you know, maybe if we have some time, we can think about that, right? Not just the doom and gloom, but how we actually try to get free or at least move towards something we might, that might look like getting free. 
Um, but one of the things I try to teach in my class and when I try to mentor students is the I encourage them to engage with the dry stuff, the boring stuff, the terms, in other words, against which people pushed. Right. Thinking about, see, as an African-American who knows my my history on both sides, uh, though, of course, there's more research to be done there. I don't need any stories about resistance because we're here. <laughs> and that is a remarkable story on its own. What I am curious in is the terms of domination, how the mechanisms and more to the point, the particular pressure points on which different groups of activists were able to push to get close to something that might have broken down or weakened, weakened the edifice. So in the form of my teaching, my mentoring is to encourage students to research opportunities to really dive into the bowels of things that seem boring, dry, but where actually that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, and it can be something really rewarding when you situate yourself in that tradition of uh, of kind of what you might call a, a radical research agenda. And I'll just give one example. Uh, I wrote about this a bit in the New York Times, a New York Times piece in, in I guess it was early May now. I was thinking about the incredible research activities of folks affiliated with CORE and the NAACP who were trying to figure out and disrupt the, the financing of Jim Crow segregation after Brown v. Board, recognizing that there was a market for the bonds of Southern segregated municipalities to finance segregated education, they tried to figure out where are the pressure points. So they wrote letters to attorney generals in different parts of the United States. They sought to push different investment banks to divest in ways that perhaps financial institutions might divest from carceral structures and mass incarceration today. But here you had a remarkable campaign that was also not just about the boycott, not just about strategies of resistance, but about research and diving into how something worked. And that experience, that sitting in that tradition and encouraging my students to sit in that tradition can be really fulfilling because what you realize, what I realized was that actually, sure, the book that I've generated today is novel in various ways, but I see myself in a tradition of folks who are trying to grapple with the matter of bond finance and inequality. And that feels, that allows you to feel like the journey is not, it's not just a solo journey. You're standing in a particular tradition. Some may call it the black radical tradition, a civil rights unionist politics. I don't know what you would call it, but it feels good to stand in that tradition. And uh, I encourage my students uh, through my teaching to, to also join me, to join me in, in that respect. Well, and you also, through this book that I've just read, have brought, like you talked about it, you went deep into learning the institution of finance. You went to a place other people don't go to shed light on something that once revealed makes a big, big impact. And the stories, I love some of the archival kind of uh, tales that you excavated to illuminate the various points, principles, and frustrations. But I loved just like, a, you know, I, I've did a PhD in international finance and worked with the Senate Banking Committee, worked in the hedge fund industry. And to watch you go in and do it well and do it right on the financial institutions was, was beautiful. And you're taking people to another place, which is where you can't dismiss me. 
You didn't do it with braggadocio. You did it with depth and thoroughness. But you take people to a place where they have to comprehend or they discredit themselves. It's just on that point, and this is this kind of goes back to something you said about love and understanding with the Marvin Gaye verses one and three. Is look, I, I am what you may say cautiously optimistic, but I have a great deal of faith, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not somebody who's doom and gloom, um, and I suppose you could say I'm cautiously optimistic. So when I gave a discussion or conversation on Thursday, it was uh, before the bond buyer community, and there were a ton of folks who were there, and. I talked about these very things, about the argument, about inequality, about Moody's ratings, about alternatives. I mean, I went there. I, I'm, not, I'm not going to shy away from what is empirically there and what I argue in the book. And I was actually surprised um, that many folks, at least, who asked the questions, they got it. And they are now themselves searching for uh, whether under the guise of the ESG framework, uh, kind of environmental social governance investing, or some other kind of paradigm, they are thinking about their daily transactions, their business dealings, to see it as more than just buying and selling, but that there's an ethics involved, there's a morality involved um, that needs exploration. And I've, I've been, of the many things I've been really satisfied by uh, having published the book, it's been that piece thus far. Because in many ways, I learned from activists when I was in New York during my last year of graduate school. I did some organizing work with the Black Youth Project 100. It was clear as day that my comrades understood bond finance, even if they didn't get the intricacies. They, they understood the stakes of it. Uh, and we would do outreach around the regressivity and crushing burdens of sales taxes, fines and fees. People on subway platforms got it as well. So uh, the sense of activists understanding the project is um, not so, not something I take for granted, uh, but something that I, because I was nourished by it from the very beginning. But what's been really kind of rewarding is to see um, maybe not so much the love for the alternatives I might propose, <laughs> but the, the kind of love with, with which people are uh, approaching the work to try to understand, one, what I have to say, but also um, what they could do about it, because they themselves control the unique levers of power. I don't. Well, what did Bob Marley say in Redemption Song? Immense yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Being that example is a pretty good thing. Being that example and being historically grounded, not totally abstract, but bringing conceptual frameworks to bear and being courageous about what you shed the light on and being constructive about where you're going. I think that's a pretty good recipe for being a successful and satisfied scholar and contributor to human well-being at a time when we need a lot of transformation. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right. And, um, you know, as somebody who is it's such a profound question the, 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 and an awesome question about how do I look back at the younger folks? Because now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not old, 
but I, I have, you know, some work under my belt. I've been in an assistant professor for a few years and um, now I'm just as, and I think maybe that goes back to like how one relates to folks coming up after you, which is to say that like, just as they have their own journey, I too have my own journey. Like I haven't figured this out at all. Um, I have some guiding principles um, and hopefully there's a kind of dialectic and exchange between folks coming up after me and as I'm moving forward um, that, you know, we can kind of nourish, nourish one another. Well, I'm going to underscore one more characteristic, which you exhibited in the last 40 seconds. Humility. You said, I'm on this journey, but I'm not sure I got to go. You just, you went right to that place. And you're, you're receptive to learning, but you're striving. Those are, those are courageous ingredients. And I really think that, uh, how would I say, that, that you didn't start from finance and go dig in, that you started from inspiration of the kind of contortions and injustices you knew were there, dig in upstream, find the clues, find the examples, find the archives that document that those perceptions are not some victim, uh, fiction that emanates from your imagination, but those are things people were grappling with and then bringing it back to us Bring it back to us and let us look. I think that I think that you are a brilliant example. I just you know we were we started off talking about your book and racial capitalism and everything, but I was really inspired to explore this example that you are becoming because I think it does bring people not only to where they'll do good, but they'll feel good. That's right. That's right. It's a sense of how do we, I think going back to soul, and I hate to paraphrase, but there's an exchange, a clip in, in the, between uh, Sonia Sanchez and uh, James Baldwin. And Sonia Sanchez says something like to the effect of how do we get through this? How do we survive in our full selves, right? Like in other words, let's not just leave something behind. And that's something that Audre Lorde would kind of punctuate, right? Not, what do we give up? when we go through this journey to fight for liberation and racial reckoning and, and so on. Um, and so that's the thing, right? Not just um, on the other side, uh, what, what are we our full selves? How do we feel good as we're going through the journey as well is, is, is key. Um, it's key. And there, of course, there's never going to be a sort of linear, steady state of feel goodness. Um, but how do we... Um, whether it be in community, whether it be through music, art, uh, other ways to kind of feel good as we do this work. Um, and, and it's something that I, I really do um, live by as I'm a big music fan. And uh, as I described the kind of artistic uh, sensibilities behind the book, but also thinking about, I mean, the chapter titles are absolutely influenced by Kendrick Lamar's Damn album. If you look at his Pulitzer Prize winning album, he's got one word track titles. Um, and so this is the thing, right? It's going to music to help you get through, uh, get through this, this, this journey because it, it is, it, it is, it is a mother, <laughs> you know, it is, it is. I heard a little childish Gambino in the mix too. As, okay. Uh, okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> that, that song it. America, where oh, you, yeah, you were no breaking pieces, no breaking question. up the dysfunction and the false consciousness there. But, uh, well, let me finish with this uh, song, which 
is very close to the heart of my generation, but which again was in my mind as I read your book and again today, and it's what I usually close my podcast with from Bob Dylan at a time of great upheaval concern about nuclear war. He wrote a song called A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. And the last verse, which I use often as the outro for my audio podcast, goes like this. And what do you do now, my blue-eyed son? And what do you do now, my darling young one? I'm going back out for the rain starts a-falling. I'll walk to the depths of the deepest black forest, where the people are money and their hands are all empty, where the pellets of poison are flooding the waters, where the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison, and the executioner's face is always well hidden, where hunger is ugly, where souls are forgotten, where black is the color, where none is the number. And I'll tell it and think it and speak it and breathe it and reflect it from the mountain so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean till I start sinking, but I'll know my song well before I start singing. It's a hard, hard, hard rain gonna fall. Every line in that, you embodied that. I didn't. I couldn't find a line where I'd say that ain't him. I couldn't find a line. And and he was propelled, written in 1962-63, by the crisis related to nuclear war. But he not only faced what was ugly and illuminated and spoke from on high about it. But he also said, and I'll know my song well before I start singing. That's what's most beautiful. A lot of people just go out and shop because it hurts. You, you built a jewel in this book. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate that. That's, that means a great deal. And it is, um, I had shared, I'll just conclude just in, in the ways of kind of giving you your flowers. Um, I had shared with, with you at the beginning, and I'll just tell the listeners, I mean, as a graduate student, I started a workshop called the Approaches to Capitalism Workshop. I was, you know, trying to find some money, and we were supported on campus, but we needed some extra funds. And, and INET and you, correspondent, found the email between you and Sylvia Yanagi-Sako, who's an anthropologist, who supported that venture, Douglas Carmichael, who took me out to lunch, uh, who supported that venture. Um, so, um, you know, it, it feels very good as well to kind of see you now, I believe it's seven years later, I think that was 2014, uh, seven years later to be in conversation and to, to, to receive that praise from you. Um, but to thank you as well for supporting supporting those initiatives early on, because that was, that was key. And, and you should know um, that there were many works that have now changed and challenged the kind of economic orthodoxy, and that's a conversation for another day, challenged the economic orthodoxy that was, that was from a work that was first presented at the Approaches to Capitalism workshop, including histories of racial capitalism. Uh, and so, so in many ways, um, we, we thank you uh, for an INET, the INET community, for, for just kind of putting that in motion early on. Well, I, I can see this continuing to evolve, and I'm sure I'm going to get off the phone tonight and call my Young Scholars Initiative and try to arrange for you to do a seminar with their multitudes in teaching that what you do well. And maybe someday if we get a little time and a little mo social mobility again, we could build a video course based on your book together. Yes, that sounds great. Thank you very much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Great. 
Well, thanks for being here. I hope we, uh, I hope we can, uh, how I say, take a little time and then come back in a few months and make another episode. That sounds great. Thank great. you. Thank thanks you. again. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing